to it. All right, Joe. So give us a brief like highlight view, like like who are you, what do you do, all that jazz. Okay. So I'm an entrepreneur just like you guys, right? Um, I've been self-employed since 1997, if you can imagine that. I have gray on my chin that you guys can see. Um, <laughs> I've built, I've bought, I've sold my own online businesses. The last one I sold was in 2010. I did it through Quiet Light. Closed in November of 2010. Joined the team in November of 2012. Um, closed 23 transactions, which was brutal, in 2013. Um Mark, the founder, and I became partners in 2018, and over the last eight years, I've closed close to 100 million in total transactions of online businesses, and 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 it, and that like getting up that hill was really really hard because honestly, it's not about the numbers; it's about about helping as many people as possible, and and that's what's resulted in that number. But uh, the transactions just keep getting larger and larger. Like uh, in 2013, it was probably an average of 125,000. Now it's, you know, 1.25 million with the larger end being 20 million. Um, so going from 100 to 200 million will probably happen fairly quickly. But I'm only one of 10 on the team. Actually, one of 11 now. We just uh, hired Chris Wozniak. And um, so I'm just, I'm just, one of one of eleven, and everybody's an entrepreneur. Everybody on the team's built, bought, or sold their online online business. Very cool. So, give us a brief overview of what Quiet Light is. We are um, a small to middle market, you know, M and A firm, a brokerage firm, whatever you want to call us, whatever label you want to put on us. We are um, uh, entrepreneurs, advisors, friends to internet business owners, and we help them sell their online businesses. At the moment, we only represent the sell side. And a typical client is somebody that's been operating their business for uh, 12 to 60 months. Um, and we're helping them understand the current value of their business and helping them understand how to get to their goal and reverse engineer a path to that so that they can have a nice clean exit someday. And then, of course, we help them exit their business and find the buyer for them as well. Awesome. And when you were running you know, your own businesses, because you mentioned you've, you've bought, sold, ran, all that good stuff, what was your primary focus? Was it, was it e-commerce? Was it SaaS? Yeah. Uh, the last one I bought was content. Okay. Yeah. So I bought a content site. And here's, let's see how you guys can come up with dates and algorithm updates in your mind. I bought it, uh, I think I closed on March 30th, 2012. It was a content okay. site. And I, I had 42 amazing days. And then, you know, the keywords that were all on page one went to page six. And within six months, I lost about $280,000. Oh what my was, gosh. Was this Panda? Close. That was 2000. 11, I think. That was February okay. 2011. This was the Penguin. I forget oh, which okay. one came first. But this yeah. was the Penguin update. I got crushed by it. So really? had that content site. But the one that I sold through Quiet Light was really, it was an e-commerce business. I sold nutritional supplements focused on digestive health. And uh, it, I took that from, if you really want to just be amused with it, I on radio prior to that, it was basically a colon cleansing product, Right. You constipated, this product helped you. I did it on radio. I took that to a TV infomercial. And then when I went 100% online in 2005, I built it out into a digestive wellness program. So it was nutritional supplements from for everything from your mouth to you know what. It benefited people in that way. But um, it was my, my model was really content-driven. 
we wrote uh, a 2,000-word article on digestive health one to two times a month, month in and month out for five years. I did that uh, early on. I spent uh, most of my, my traffic and revenue was from uh, PPC, and it was Google AdWords. Um, and then later on, uh, there was a peak of about $50,000 a month in PPC spending. And later on, when I was able to sell the business, I had enough organic traffic that I could bring that PPC, PPC, piece, PPC spending down to uh, about $20,000 a month. Okay. So it was, nice. a, it was a blending combination, but it was, it was content driven, but it was definitely selling physical products. So I've always had this weird fascination with content or, you know, authoritative sites, whatever you want to, you know, label them as, because it's, it's a really interesting business model, right? Like the value is the content is the rankings is the traffic you get from, from those. Um, and you see them quite frequently being sold. It's, it's this cool little niche of the, the sell side of the market where you have a lot of people where they just basically build out these small little authoritative sites, get them a decent amount of, you know, rev revenue, and then just sell them for a decent multiple. Um, I've never understood primarily the buy side of that. Of Let's say it's doing two grand in month, a month in revenue. Um, who are the people buying these types of sites? Like, and, and what's the, I, I would imagine it's more of a strategic acquisition than just like a portfolio hold, but I could be wrong. Actually, the, the last few that I've sold have been portfolio. People that are, you know, they've, they've got a, a repository of, of writers that they can go to that will continue to write content that is good quality content at a fair to low price and just continue to develop that content over time and they build a portfolio. A lot of these guys, they know how to monetize the site better. The, the person that runs just one content site probably doesn't have the experience to um, negotiate with some of the uh, affiliate companies and and get a little bit higher margin or a little bit more percentage on maybe the commission they're going to get or uh, on the on the click that they may get. So some of them can monetize them better and that's their expertise. And then just a long-term play of good quality content over time, white hat stuff and Google and I guess there's other search engines. I'm not sure what they are these days, but Google will reward you. And that's generally the model. And uh, from the sell side, they, you know, I love, I love selling content sites. They, um, they're cleaner, they're simpler. They generally sell at a higher multiple. Um, they, as long as they're driving good traffic and you've got rabid fans, they can go for really incredible multiples. Um, the lowest that I've sold actually was sort of trending down a little bit. I'm talking in the last 24 months, trending down a little bit and was pretty small in a specific niche that wasn't all that exciting. And it still sold for about a two and a half time multiple of the trailing 12 months discretionary earnings. The high side, I closed something a year and a half ago for about 8.75 million. That was a content site specifically focused on soap operas. There's not a lot of soap operas these days. So it was, that's where you have rabid fans, they're checking the site every single day or the Facebook page every single day for new and updated content on what's happening. And um, the payoff on that was just tremendous for the owner of that business. Jonathan, I'm waiting for you to jump in, man. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just thinking about um, this, this uh, it, it, especially in journalism. I am, I'm starting to see a trend where sites are moving at least somewhat away from like an ad revenue-driven revenue model 
to a subscription-based model where, you know, if you want to consume their content, you pay them directly. Do you find those types of, uh, of sites, do they tend to bring with them more intrinsic value because of that direct revenue versus just purely ad-supported? Okay, so now we're talking theory because I've never listed one, <laughs> nor has anyone here at Quiet Light. So in theory, yes, you've got subscriber revenue, you've got monthly recurring revenue, you've got lifetime value of a customer. You can pay to acquire them, and you know that on average they're going to stick around for X amount of months and they're going to be worth a certain amount of money. But it's all theory for me because I haven't done it. Um, I personally know that anytime I'm flipping through the news and I click on an article and they need me to subscribe, it just pisses me off. And I look for the same type of information for free, which is generally out there. Um, but in theory, yes, Jonathan, it's absolutely <laughs> worth more. Buyers will pay more for recurring revenue and um, really understanding the lifetime value of a customer, things of that nature. Like I'm thinking like the freshest example in my head is, uh, you know, depending on how much you paid attention to the news the last couple of years, the whole Gawker media, Hulk Hogan, Peter Thiel lawsuit thing and Gawker kind of imploding on itself because of that. And a lot of the uh, a lot of the staff that that wrote for Deadspin specifically all kind of left at once and then started up their own show called um, Defector, I believe it is. I don't know. I pay that money. I feel like I should know what they're called. Um, but like in my head, like to me, they're immediately more valuable just as the consumer of their content because, you know, there are no ads, right? It is, it's just, just sports stuff that's actually interesting, right? And you don't have all of these advertorial bits of garbage kind of just scattered everywhere because there's somebody that wants to, you know, try and milk it for all it's worth. I can imagine that, you know, again, like you said, it's all theory, but I, I can imagine there's something to be said about that kind of quality presentation having something to do with the the value. Yeah, no, I say theory because I haven't done it myself, nor have we seen those here at Quiet Light. We're generally in the, I say sub 20 million range, but it changes all the time. Um, but let me just tell you, if the name of that company is Defector, and it's because all of those people left the company and started their own, I absolutely love them. And I love, I love their, <laughs> I love their uh, chutzpah. It's awesome. It's awesome. But yeah, yeah, there's definitely more value there. It's, 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 it's similar to a SaaS business, right? So SaaS businesses are worth more than physical product e-commerce businesses in general. Mm. Because Billy, you got me beat on that one. So Joe, I used to, which, which we've kind of talked about on your podcast, um, but I, me, I used to run an Amazon business in physical products and then literally shut that business down. And moved into SaaS. Right. Um, and everybody was like, that's the dumbest thing you could ever do. I'm like, except for the fact that the multiples are literally different and the, the profit margins are literally the opposite. But sure, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who's crazy now, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's it, it's just ironic where a lot of people, a lot of business owners don't consider the fact that the business model choice is more important than they think it is. It's just, well, I see people selling on Amazon, so therefore I shall do that. It's like, yeah, but... What are you attempting to do? Like you kind of mentioned reverse engineering and I'm a huge fan of it. It's like, okay, well, are you trying to build a company that you then sell and exit or do you want a cash flow business? And depending on the model at like, or depending on that choice, like the model itself is going to change. Um, Cause if you want to exit a brand on Amazon, that's fantastic, but it's not going to be wholesale and it's not going to be retail arbitrage. It's got to be private label now. Um, 
But a lot of people don't think that stuff through. It's just like make money online. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like and, that's the end of it. Even if even if they go into it with the idea that they're just trying to build cash flow, they are becoming entrepreneurs. They are entrepreneurs, and eventually they're going to get tired of what they're doing, which is what's wrong with us, right? We get itchy. We get shiny object syndrome. We chase too many rabbits. We need to find something else to do. And when that happens, it's time to move on and sell that business instead of let it slowly die on the vine. If you handle it right, especially especially if it's a physical products business, because if you've got an FBA business or a straight up e-commerce business, congratulations, you know, if you're making money on Shopify and cracking that code, your your need capital requirements to keep up with inventory demand if you're growing rapidly takes all the money out of the business. You're not taking any distributions for yourselves. I sold one uh, a couple of years ago. I talked to the guy yesterday, actually, just catching up with him. He ran the business for 30 months from zero to his exit. It was 30 months. He took $600 out of the business. And it was for a camera that he bought to take photos because he was a photographer. And then he kept that. That was his take out of the business in 30 months. It was growing so rapidly. Every ounce of it was uh, profit was going back into inventory. He was taking home equity lines to keep up. It worked. In 30 months, he sold the business for $1.2 million, if you include the inventory that he got paid back for. So he made 600, well, not $600,000 a year. He made a good return on investment for his time, um, but he wasn't able to take anything out of it during that time. So cash flow is great, but in a physical products business, you can't grow rapidly and suck all the cash out of the business. I don't think there's any um, passive Amazon business, you know. Um, <laughs> don't I get love- it started on the uh, the mailbox paychecks. <laughs> yeah, I get hit with these ads all the time and emails all the time about passive this and passive that. And I don't think any of them, if you're really going to be successful at it or truly passive. And I mean, we all know the four-hour work week. We all know the story. We've all probably owned the book at one point. I have. Uh, and I know people that have lived that life. And it got them started on their entrepreneurial journey, which is perfect. But eventually they realized that you can't work four hours a week and truly take a vacation because the other 36 hours a week when you're supposedly not working, you're still thinking about it or you've got to respond to an email. It may all add up to four hours. And I find it rare that it actually adds up to only that. But collectively, your mind is there and you're never truly away from the business, which Look, at all right, it's 2020, so I've been self-employed for 23 years. It's great to just shut down and walk away from the business, from your mind. And you really can't do that with that kind of model. You've got to have some people that can operate the business for you in your mental absence, if not yeah. physical absence. No, it's totally true. And um, I was in a unique position where I was, gosh, uh, sophomore, junior year in, in, in college. And I was like, all right, well. So a couple of years ago? Yeah, a couple of years ago, I got to figure out what I want to do. You know, I I got to I got to really make a bet on the next ten to twenty years, and that's what I wanted. I wanted a 10, 20 year bet. Yeah, um, and I was like, okay, I want to run a hundred million dollar business. Okay. okay, does my current model get me there? At the time, that was a hard no. Like it was like no. It's like the the largest businesses that I know of in my space that are doing what I do are at sixty five million, and 
I don't want to run that business <laughs> like at all. Yeah. And yeah. so I was like, okay, well, software it is because one, it doesn't cost a lot of money. Like you were talking about a high capital, you know, cost to running a physical products business. Right. And I needed to be able to have a job. I needed to be able to take cash out of it to pay a salary, to keep doing it because I was going to graduate and I'm not about to go get a job. Right. So I think it's important to figure out like what you want, reverse engineer that and then help that kind of guide you, not necessarily dictate, but guide you on the path of what business model you should choose and like what business you should, you should start. Yeah. Um, because yeah, a lot of people think, Oh, I'm going to start an Amazon business and have a Lambo in 12 months. But that guy mm. took 600 bucks <laughs> and not even cash for himself. He can you know. stand in front of a Lambo and have his photo taken. That's sure. about it. Let me just say that I'm busting your chops about being in college a couple of years ago, because I, as I said, when we last talked, how impressed I am with what you've accomplished by the age of, you know, before the age of 30, it blows my mind. Thank you. I appreciate um, it. I'm trying to play so, catch up. <laughs> so, you know, back to the choice in that reverse engineering and whatnot, the choice of business, you know, choosing content or SaaS or physical products. Um, that person that I sold uh, the uh, content site for, for just under eight, uh, it was 8.75. So just under 9 million. It was a content business. And he sold that. This is a fascinating story. He's actually a, a single father, was homeless at the age of 16. Uh, the first business that he sold was uh, an affiliate business for like $7,000. He bought it for three, improved it, sold it a few months later for seven. The next one was 20000 And then we sold one. And then we got involved for his next one. Those were on his own through Flippa, I think. Uh, and then we sold one for him a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago at this point for 230000 uh, that was content. And then the soap opera one for 8.75. Now he's in physical products because he just, he bought one for next to nothing and just got excited about it and passionate about it. And is just really, really good at learning new information and marketing and SMS me messaging and Facebook and all this other stuff. But he has that same goal. Well, that hundred million dollar goal. And so he set a goal to exit for a hundred million. There's somebody that's goes from homeless to being able to exit for $100 million, maybe, theory right now. Um, and he's just doing that reverse engineering that you're talking about. And so he went out and he talked to investment bankers. He talked to other people that have sold at that high level to determine what kind of multiple or what kind of discretionary earnings he has to have in the 12 months prior to selling, what percentage of that revenue has to be recurring because – you know, like Jonathan said, that recurring revenue is going to add more value, that subscription revenue. And you you have to just, you, you, you've got to do your research and, and really dig deep to do that, to set those goals and make them attainable and, and sort of reverse engineer that path. I find it unfortunate on a, in a dramatic way um, how many people get into this for the Lambo or the cash flow and look at the top line revenue only and never truly understand the value of what they're building. And particularly in an e-commerce, and it could be content or SaaS as well, that understanding that the, the, the majority of the money that you're ever going to make from the business will probably come the day that you sell it. And your taxes are going to be less too because it's capital gains. <laughs> it's not true income. Right. So, and, then, and then understanding you know, how to set a goal in terms of exiting. So if you want to exit for a million or two or a hundred, you can reverse engineer that path to it. Once you understand that, that valuation process and really how to make money in the online space, 
because you're not going to make a ton in a, in a physical products business that's growing yeah. like crazy. Cash flow you bring really up like. a good point too, where you know I felt myself go through the shift with a new company where you know previously it was how much money can I take home, right? Because that was the whole point. It was a cash flow business. Like how Me do too. I just pay my bills and and not have a job? Yep. But now it's different, right? Now it's just can I pay myself enough to like be comfortable? But I'm putting everything back into it because I'm looking at the value of my equity, and I care more about that. Right now, I'm like, I don't need to pay myself an extra like ten grand a year. Who cares? Like, put that back in because really, if you think about it, that ten grand would have a higher impact in raising my net worth via my equity than it would me just taking it home. Like, it makes no sense to take it home to then theoretically reinvest it. It's like, no, just leave it in the business because I can have the biggest impact, the biggest ROI on that 10 grand in my company than I could another public stock. Um, and it's a weird shift. A lot of you know newer business owners won't probably exper- exper- uh, experience that because um, a lot are going to be LLCs, but you should still have that same like methodology of like, what's the value of what of the asset you own, not what does it just like pay you out. Like it's just a different perspective. Um, but it's one that's really fascinating to me. Yeah. I think the, the net worth, uh, and understanding the the value of their business, that it could present, uh, represent, you know, the majority of their net worth, the, the idea of, uh, reinvesting in the company, uh, and putting that 10,000 in your situation, which your example, uh, back into the business and building equity in the company, is the tip of the iceberg, and it's just enough information to be dangerous, kind of like a, a yellow belt in karate, right? You think you're tough, you think you know it all, and then you get kicked upside the head by a brown belt that's <laughs> right. half your size. Uh, happened to me, actually. Uh, this old guy kicked me in the ribs, man. He was, it hurts. <laughs> um, I thought it was tough. He learned, he taught me something. But the the understanding, you know, what addbacks are, you know, using proper accounting methods, right? So yeah. And I, I, everything I, I talk about here, it, I've done it right. So when I, when I first launched my business in 1997, I said all I want to do is make uh, replace my income, right? I quit my last job days before I would have gotten fired. And I was making thirty five thousand dollars a year. I just wanted to make that, right? That was my goal. And then there was a point where I'd used to, I'd write down how much I made that week on my hand because it was so damn. Exciting. I'm like, wow, I made that. I write it down on my hand. I wasn't doing any accounting. It was all like on a napkin. But now I understand the value of accounting because if you really want to understand what the value of the asset you own is, you have to understand how to calculate that value. You know, what your net income is and what addbacks are that you can add back your own salary or those one-time expenses or the cash back that you get from your credit cards that you use on advertising. Those types of things, you know, can be missed really easily. So it's important that people get that knowledge and it's complex and we could not possibly do it on a podcast because uh, people just, their eyes will start to bleed if we go that, that route too much. Jonathan's just starting but it, already. It, 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 <laughs> it does add a ton of value though. I mean, we, we just recently went through a 409A valuation because um, we're issuing options for new employees. And even that, because early on we understood that we put those into place um, it was just an easy thing. Like we had one high level conversation um, with with the agent we were working on the valuation with, and uh, like, yeah, pretty straightforward. Cool, we're gonna run this valuation here. Wow. Here it is, like done, nice and easy, right? So now, what would have been really painful um, to get option valuation is now taking max an hour of our time. Are you guys a C corp? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, you're C corp. Okay. 
Good for yeah. you. Good for so, you. So we got, we got, That's great. Well, yeah. We, so we, we have options now, which is nice. So we get to offer a little option pool, uh, which, uh, but again, we, we knew we wanted to be that company early on. So, so we knew, okay, well, if we're going to go that route, we need to make some decisions earlier on. Yeah. It's going to cost us more money, but again, it's an investment in, into the business. And I find too many business owners view every cost as like the end of the world, right? It's very much like a personal thing. Like, well, why would I pay a CPA? Like that's going to cost too much money. It's like, no, no, no. You're investing into an amazing relationship. That's going to make your life amazing in 12 months. <laughs> like it's yeah. worth it. Do yeah, it. For sure. um, versus just like, it's just money leaving. No, it's not money leaving you. You're actually increasing the value of what you own. And sometimes that's via relationships. Um, so it's just, it's different. I'm curious though. So I've always been fascinated. I mean, you kind of talked about this um, offline about getting into the buying and selling of smaller like assets, right? So, so these content sites, um, maybe physical products at what point, both from a capital standpoint, um, well, mainly from a capital standpoint, does it make sense for somebody to jump in to buying and selling like these types of assets? You know, obviously not like the 200 K range, but I don't know, let's say tens of thousands of dollars. Like, does that even make sense to do? Cause you, you gave, um, that guy's, you know, case study essentially, Ramon, yeah. um, it was years you ago, know, you know, him start with, with a little bit of capital. I mean, that's yeah. super fascinating to me though. Yeah. I think if you're, if you're going to go that route and you're, you're going, you know, Flippa is the place to go for the, you know, low value. Young, I got burned so hard on Flippa. <laughs> right. And it, it, most people do get burned, right? right. You're, you're mining for gold and, yeah. and the only ones that really made money in the gold rush were those who were selling shoes and mining pants. Correct. Correct. Um, so, you know, I, the, the idea of buying and selling websites, buying and, and selling online businesses, I, I think it's buy one, build it, build more value, sure. understand it, uh, and then maybe sell it. Put some money aside, and you're not as bootstrapped the next time. Um, I we we generally, uh, you know, we 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 sell things that are less than two hundred fifty thousand these days. Uh, I just sold one that was one hundred thirty thousand last week, um, but we definitely don't deal in the, you know, ten to fifteen to twenty thousand dollar listing unless look if we have a relationship and you and I've sold another business for you. You're like, what about this one? Do you have anybody for that? I could, you know, reach out to certain buyers and say, look, I'm you know, I, you and I know you're in the content space. Is this of interest to you? Um, and they'd look at essentially it like that. an off market deal, so yeah, to speak, pocket, yeah. pocket listing kind of thing. Um, but I think, you know, the reality is that larger listings are generally less risk and that's why they're worth more in terms of the multiple because they're older, they're more established, they're uh, more stable, they have more diverse revenues, more reviews, whatever the case might be, those ten to $20,000 businesses, um, there are people that build them and flip them. And really, they're just, I think, stealing money from people um, that are innocent and trying to get into this space. Uh, and I've seen it happen, and it's, it's, it's kind of a bummer because oftentimes you get one shot, right? You, you saved up 10 grand, 20 grand, 50 grand, whatever it is, you get one shot at it. And you need to get it right um, before you save up that money again and have the, the, the balls to do it again, or your spouse allows you to do it again. Right. You know, I do what I do. I've built, bought and sold, but after my last fiasco, when I bought that content site and got crushed by penguin, there's no way I could talk my wife into allowing me to buy another online business. You know, fortunately I'm in a space now where it's, 
it would be a bit of a conflict if I was buying because I'm on the other side. So I never have to take that risk again. Um, if I were, if I was out of the quiet light brokerage business, um, it'd be, I'd be, I'd, I'd coin toss between uh, e-commerce and content. I love content. So if it was a well-established content business that just um, really stood up with great organic rankings and white hat all the way, um, I think that's a long-term solid business model if you're not in a rush to get rich. Yeah. Right. So no PBNs on, <laughs> yeah. on, on it. <laughs> right. That's good to know. I, so I'm curious to you, what, what kind of deal structures, and I know we kind of talked about this offline as well, but for those listening, like what types of deal structures are you guys currently seeing? And I'm sure it kind of varies, but yeah. generally speaking. Yeah. No, I had a conversation with Walker about this earlier today. Um, it's, they're kind of all over the place, but general rules, let's call it uh, sub $2 million. Um, and that means anything from 50,000 to $2 million. Um, you're, you're probably going to wind up with an all cash deal. Uh, or if it's an SBA deal, it's going to be the equivalent of all cash, right? SBA okay. small business sure. administration. Yep. Cause the buyer is going to bring that 10, 15, 20% to the table. It's a good deal for them. Um, the one I just closed last week again, 131,000 all cash listed under LOI in three days. It was a three repeat buyer from Quiet Light. He bought it and knew exactly. It was perfect fit for his other two that he's got. Um, I I don't think that any seller uh, under that two million dollar mark should really need to carry any seller financing. Yet it does happen, right? You just have to understand the mindset of the seller and get to know your buyer. Right. So when I sold my business, I had a, a couple of offers that were seller financing and I just didn't like the guy that was buying the business. The two of them, I was like, I, you're an asshole. I don't want to work with you. I don't <laughs> want to sell you my business. Right. I'm not going to chase you for money. And it just didn't feel right. But there are times when seller financing makes a lot of sense or at least po- a portion of it. Um, the largest I've seen in, I would say, the last six years might be 25% seller note. Um, the largest I've seen in the last eight years was 50%. And it was a business that I, I listed for a, a woman and the buyer was a woman and it was like they were long lost sisters. They absolutely loved each other. And it just made sense uh, for that 50% seller finance. There, there was trust and there was um, a tax basis reason for doing it. But for the most part, the owner of the business is not a bank. They should not be financing the sale of the business to the buyer. As businesses get larger, the deals get more complex. There may be a uh, cash plus a seller note or cash plus an earnout. Uh, have you heard of Thrasio yet? Thrasio, uh, yes, Thrasio. I have. Right. Um, uh, what's Holden. his name from um, Viral Launch? Just went to work with them, if I'm not mistaken. Casey, yeah. So Casey, it's yeah. a it's a holding company, and they're buying up FBA businesses when all cash too. If no, I'm not mistaken. You're definitely mistaken. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So there are some that are all cash. We've sold them. Okay. We've sold them. As of April, when they got their billion-dollar valuation, we probably sold them 22 to 23% of their total purchases really? at that time. With with companies like that, um, and there's there's a lot of people, a lot of holding company wannabes these days because of that valuation, there's a lot that have come to the forefront. They're looking to buy the business at a, at a low multiple. Um, they're going to look for what's called, um, you can call it a seller note or a stability payment that after 12 months, you're going to get paid 
you know, that extra 10% or 20% if revenues are within 90% of the trailing 12-month revenues when you bought the business. Okay. When they bought the business. And they're going to look for some – there's something in, in the private equity world that's called working capital pegs. Sure. We don't like them. We avoid them as much as possible. But as our listings get bigger and bigger and bigger – you know, north of 10 million or so, we start to see the language of a working capital peg. Uh, with a holding company, sometimes they come from that private equity world, right? Their investment bankers sure. come from the private equity world. So they, they know that language. They've raised money based upon that language, and they're going to seek that from you, the seller, and they'll look for a working capital peg in the form of a couple of months' worth of inventory. So if you've got $90,000 worth of inventory, you're going to give up 60000 of that at closing and not get paid for it to many of these holding companies. So there's that possibility as well. And then when you get into the larger deals, north of 5 million or so, it could be cash plus earnout plus a seller note or a combination of all of the above. I tell you the one thing that I will always fight against and I would strongly, strongly recommend anybody listening to do the same is never accept, a sell, never accept an earnout based upon profit net income or discretionary earnings. Okay, um, yeah, it's easily manipulated. <laughs> easy manipulated. And even if you and the buyer absolutely love each other, when things get rocky, they're going to fudge those numbers. They're going to pad the numbers. Yeah. And ethics go out the door. So avoid them stepping across the ethical line and just push it up to gross profit or to uh, you know a smaller percentage of gross profit or a much smaller percentage of, of total revenue. They will fight you on that. They will absolutely fight you on that, but fight for it because I've seen it happen, unfortunately, a couple of times this year where people are due earnouts and they have to fight to get their earnout because they have to because the, the the numbers and the costs just are through the roof and they don't make any sense. And all they do is depress the numbers so that they they won't get paid their number. Sure. So. Are, are clawback clauses common these days for on the, on the sell side? Uh, claw, why don't you define what you see as a clawback clause? Because there's different definitions of it. Okay, yeah, I figured there was a few versions of it. So clawback as in like if – if I give a seller note or X, Y, and Z, so let's say I'm going to do like 50% seller note. Um, let's say I'm not going to charge an interest rate on that note though, or very, very low, right? It might be just like, you know, free tax rate um, or free, free interest rate. So like I might do that. And then if certain milestones are not hit in X period of time, basically I get a portion back or the entire company back because essentially I'm giving a lot of, yeah. I'm, I'm taking on a lot of risk as a seller and I, yeah. I, I want to be able to make sure that I'm negating or at least mitigating some of that risk by having some kind of clause into the, the sell contract. Yeah. Yeah. So again, we, uh, 25% is really the highest I've seen in the last six years. So there's, there's always going to be security on that seller note so that, you know, if you don't pay that seller note, uh, you know, Ideally, I'm going to come after you personally. I'm going to take the business. Okay. I'm going to do whatever I can to get the business or get that money from you. Um, there was a time, you know, on those 23 transactions that I did in 2013, I don't think a single buyer or seller used an attorney. They used the Quiet Light Brokerage template asset purchase agreement, filled it in and read it closely and signed off. Today, regardless of the size, um, I'm, I'm recommending 
the asset purchase agreement be reviewed by an attorney on both sides. And we recommend certain attorneys for that. It should be a contract attorney specializing in the online space, not your mother, father, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, cousin. Um, I've seen that happen and those deals generally fall apart because they fight for things like clawbacks that are, that are so unreasonable that it's that it's the that one tenth of one percent chance that this might happen. So therefore, this needs to be in the agreement, and it, it just scares the seller away or the buyer away, and then kills the deal. The yeah, yeah, it that needs makes to be sense. Reasonable and fair for both parties, and the, the whole the 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 most important thing I think a lot of people miss when they think about buying or selling an online business is that when you're when you're building a business, the way to get maximum value for that business someday, in my opinion, is to build a great business and think about the eventual buyer of that business. I'm going to build a great business for a great buyer someday, and I'm going to get a great price because of it. It's going to be great for me. It's going to be great for them. Instead of the mentality of, I'm going to just crank this up and sell it for X amount of money and run the other way. Too many people think the second way. The right way, I think, is the first way because karma does exist and what comes around goes around. And I think if you do the right thing, you help other people, You what you guys do on this podcast and getting the right message out there and sharing your experience and, and helping first, even as a business owner that will eventually sell to an owner, another owner, help them, help them understand your business, build a great business, launch new SKUs, launch new content in the 12 months prior so there's built-in paths to growth. For them, it's great. It's going to benefit them and you're going to get a higher value at a better at a better deal structure too. That's when you get these multiple offer all cash offers that come to the table when you do the right thing for for the other party. Sorry. I'll get off my soapbox. No, it's good. That's good. It's a good soapbox. And I and this is I, I love episodes like this because this is not something I know a whole heck of a lot about. Like this is this is basically the Dylan and Joe show right now, <laughs> which is totally fine because this is easy access to knowledge that I may not have been able to, you know, otherwise easily obtain. And I think our listeners would agree, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here as somebody who's fresh out of a, out of the the soft launch of a a direct to consumer physical goods business. And, you know, just even, even just in those first few weeks, right. There's just so much to learn so much that I hadn't even thought about. And the fact that there's so much down the road that, it's just it just blows my mind, right? All of this, like you know, I think about you know what what do I want this business to look like in a year, in five years? Do I even want to have it in five years, right? Like those are all things that I eventually have to start thinking about because it is very much a long tail kind of process, right? You don't just wake up and say, "All right, we're going to make the business sale ready today," and it, you know it doesn't just happen like that. So on the on the other side i feel a bit fortunate in that you know i didn't quit my job to start this business you know it's not paying our rent right like i have i have a day job that can you know if everything else fell apart tomorrow i could we'd be fine i'll just go figure out something else go do something else right and that's it and it it creates a lot of additional kind of almost comfort right when it comes to the business building like how do how do i want to build this because I can afford to be more particular. I can afford to be more more calculated and more conservative with the moves that I make versus I have 30 days because my mortgage is due and I have to come up with a mortgage payment. All right, how do we do this? You know, <laughs> yeah. so 
hopefully the biggest problem you have is is figuring out how to keep up with inventory demands. Right? Yeah, in my case, luckily, um, I don't know how many of your your uh, of our past episodes you've listened to, but um, my inventory is made to order, so. <laughs> There is no yeah, inventory so storage. Perfect. <laughs> so you get you get the money, and then you put the order out to your manufacturer. They produce it, ship it. You yeah. collect the, you collect the other half of the money. How's it work? How's the model work? In this particular uh, sub market, it's it's all fresh roasted, right? So the roaster I'm partnering with has existing contracts with importers and all that stuff. I'm utilizing all of those relationships to get really good deals on the price of beans and whatnot. And they essentially don't roast anything until an order arrives. So I get the benefit of not having to keep inventory, both physically, you know, physical space constraint wise and having everything slowly go stale. And I also get to advertise. This was literally made yesterday. Doesn't get any better than this. You know, like it's, it literally is a win-win and then I just pay them for their effort per unit. It's and brilliant. That's, it's and that's brilliant. It. And, and I keep the and rest. Hopefully you're creating some, you know, recurring revenue as well with subscribers that are going to, get that fresh coffee every month. It's a brilliant model. So that's, that's wonderful. The, you know, when you're launching a business, like you said, there's so many things that are going on in your head and so many things you can and should do. I've been to mastermind groups, um, as you know, the person in my position coming in to hang out and talk to them. And I've seen people and it, you know, getting so much information, it's like drinking through a fire hose and they're, they're, they're almost paralyzed and don't know what to do. So, you got to pick and choose what you're going to do and the from the eventual sale position instead of waking up someday and going oh, i got to get out of this I, i'm going to sell tomorrow well you're not going to sell tomorrow cuz it takes a while but you want to you want to prepare for it you want to train for it right if you're going to run a marathon you got to train for it you can't just wake up and do it you're not going to get across the finish line the one piece of advice i'd say to get your training underway is just hire an e-commerce bookkeeper to those listening. If you're running, no matter what kind of business you're running, outsource that and get it right so that you can run a profit and loss statement. You can do your ad back schedule. You can figure out where you are today so that you can see how far or how close you are to your goals. If you try to do that all yourself and save a couple hundred, three hundred, five hundred, a thousand dollars, depending upon the size of your business, you're, you're, you're not a bookkeeper. You, You shouldn't be doing it. And um, it's it's money well well spent um, more than any other area. I think that people should outsource that just to get the numbers right, to get that off their plate. I even the the business I mentioned a little while ago that sold in thirty months. That person he was a he was a CPA. He quit his day job, stay at home dad, CPA, and he hired an e commerce bookkeeper to do his numbers for him. He outsourced it anyway, which goes to. You know, something I'm always saying is that your your CPA should be doing tax mitigation and tax pre- preparation. They should not be doing your monthly accounting for you because they'll do it differently than an e-commerce bookkeeper will do. In my opinion, you should be hiring an e-commerce bookkeeper to do the the importing of your data, the the inputting of your data, getting it done right on an accrual basis, and then your CPA can ask you about inventory levels if you've got them and make sure that you're filing taxes the proper way. But it's going to be easier for them if you've got the numbers right. And when you want to exit, it's going to be easier as well if you've got the books right. So that's the the number one thing I would say that people should do when they're you know coming up for air once the business is sort of launched and up and running. Uh, and the longer they wait to get that right, the more it's going to cost them 
to do it retroactively and the more of a pain in the ass it's going to be as well. And I got to say, it's cool to not just look at your revenue as a metric, but to recalculate the value of your equity like once a month because you're like, oh my God, I added, I don't know, a hundred grand to my net worth. That's way more impactful than like we added 30 grand in ARR. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you're looking at the the outside of that multiple, right? Y- yeah, you got to make a few assumptions on multiples, but that's, you know, fairly easy to do. Just get decent comps there. But like, it's just cool because it's just such a different, again, different way to view your business, especially like from a value standpoint than just like we do X in revenue. It's like, but why are you here? Like, do you really care about the revenue? Like you care about the revenue because you care about the value of the company and that's different. Right. And so it just, it provides this nice little, because everything is, is correct and everything is calculated correctly. Um, and you didn't have to do it. You get to just sit down and say, our value went up pretty, pretty decently. That's kind of awesome. And you can either have those reports run for you or you can run them on a monthly basis. And then you can look at things and, and this is where spending a few hundred bucks a month is so, so worth it. You can go, okay, how's my advertising as a percentage of revenue this month versus the same month last year or year to date versus the same period last year? Oh my goodness, it's up 3%. That VA that I, that I hired to do that is not following the SOPs. What's going on? I need to focus on that. Because that 3% off of a million is going to bring that discretionary earnings down. Your value is going to go down. Uh, your margins shrink. Buyers get a little nervous. Um, you're making less cash flow and the equity that you're talking about goes down as well. So having those numbers done right, you can analyze those things and and build a better value for yourself and eventually your buyer as well. So yeah, good stuff. Sense. Yeah. Jonathan, you got any other questions, concerns? Concerns? No, definitely not any concerns. <laughs> I mean, you know, when I started this, I started it as a single member LLC uh, just for the, the you know the lower friction yep. perspective of it, but I know that it's not sustainable, right? Because for for those listening at home that have no idea the significance of it, a single member LLC has virtually no importance tax wise. <laughs> like it's, for tax purposes, it's basically a, a sole proprietorship with a fancy name on the end of it, right? It's just so harder it's, to sue you as a person. That's basically all it is, <laughs> and that's even just only like marginally different, right? So exactly, it's not you long term you don't want to be running your business as virtually a sole proprietor because that makes everything exponentially harder um but when i first started it i also couldn't like i couldn't immediately wrap my head around the 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 pros and the cons of taking the llc route versus incorporating can you can you Speak to that a little bit. Like if you're if 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 I'm looking to start a new business today, like what what should I be thinking about as far as the structure goes? If if my goal is to also be planning for a nice, comfortable, sane future. Yeah. I think uh any entity structure other than a C Corp is the way to go. If why is that? Well, if if you're going to and envision yourself as a business that is going to be built and sold in the next three to five years. And you're not going to have, you know, a, a staff that's on site walking around in the background that's getting shares of the company uh, to stick around and, and help it grow. Um, because when you, you've got to own a C, and I'm not a CPA, I'm not a tax expert here, but here goes. You've got to uh, own and operate that C Corp for a certain number of years before it can be converted uh, for a lower tax basis when it's sold. But the big reason is because 
literally 99% of the transactions that we do, as in everyone in the space that we're in, are asset sales, not stock sales. So they're not going to buy your corporation, whether it's an LSC, an S-Corp, or C-Corp. They're not going to buy that. They're going to buy the assets of the business and move them into their own entity, and you're going to be left with an empty shell. That's that's the biggest reason. So the easiest entity set up um, is what I would go with. I think the most complex is probably the C corp, and the easiest is the the LLC and uh, S corp. <laughs> I had one sure. once, and I remember sitting with my CPA and my attorney, and both of them bouncing ideas off of each other, and they came up with this complex structure. Where I was going to have a C corp and two S corps, and the S corps were going to uh, the that C Corp is charging management fees to the S Corps. And oh, yeah. <laughs> like two hours later, I was calculating how much I was paying them to just make my life so much more yeah. complicated uh, and supposedly saving a little bit of money at the end of the day. Um, but I was also, I had an in-house bookkeeper, so it kind of made my life really complicated anyway because I was doing most of it myself theoretically because I, I didn't hire an expert. See, I learn all these lessons myself, and then I share them. At one point, I, I literally, when I launched my business in 1997, it took me probably a year to understand how to reconcile a bank statement and use QuickBooks. My brother's best friend was a CPA, uh, and he came over. We sat on the back porch, had a beer, and he did it all. And I was like, oh, I love that. Look, I have 25000 more than I thought I had. And I kind of liked accounting at that point. And now I like it because... I mean, it still makes my eyes bleed. Don't get me wrong. I fell asleep in accounting class in college, literally. Northeastern University, big, like 150 people in a room. I fell asleep. Everybody left. I'm still drooling on the desk. And the next class came in. <laughs> That's how much I like accounting. But I understand the value of it and the necessity of it when it comes to owning and operating a business. Because without the right numbers, you're not going to be able to exit you're not going to be able to get a loan from a bank. You're not going to be able to get a line of credit, those types of things, all of which you should set up and should have, but none of it can happen without proper, clean financial documents. And there, <laughs> UPS is here, and uh, the dog is now barking. Maybe I thought that was Jonathan for a second. I was like, <laughs> no, you a dog. No, I did not have dogs. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say, I imagine there's also a lot to be argued about buy versus build when it comes to starting a business, right? Because it's, it's really easy. Like, if you want to start a thing, right? Like, it's, it's really easy to think about, well, somebody maybe has already done some of the hard work, whatever that actually means. So then you just go buy whatever half formed thing that they've come up with. But am I from, from everything that I've done in the past few months, it almost seems like if, if I was, if I was to buy what I've created now in its current state, like it almost sounds like it'd be harder just because the fact that I put in all of the time to, to build it up myself, like I understand all of the little intricate components that have gone into where it's at right now because I was there, right? It's, it's, it's like if, you know, when somebody tells you that, that fantastical story about that one thing that happened that one time in college, right? Like it, it sounds like a cool story, but like you weren't there, like it doesn't really mean anything to you, right? Like it's, you know, when you're actually there, like you can, you can recall all those things in your mind and you, you know, you have all of the, the flashbacks and the, the feel goods and whatnot, right? Like to me, it seems like, Building it yourself brings in a lot of those feel goods from something that you've created that now all of a sudden you have 
more appreciation for this half-formed thing versus just taking something off of somebody's plate, not really knowing what they have or have not done and not really having any kind of, you know, relationship with it, so to speak. Yeah, the the buy versus build, um, yeah, there's going to be people that are right to, to build and take that risk and climb that mountain. And there are people that are just much better at buying because they can they can take it to the next level when, you know, I, I, I use this phrase and I use it on myself, right? I remember that job that I quit a bef- few days before I got fired? It's because I was promoted to my own level of incompetence. Um, and when you when you start an online business and you and you grow it and you get it to a certain level, there are certain things that need to be done to get bigger, like you guys are doing with your larger company. Uh, and you have to have a certain maturity level to do that and certain advisors to do that. And it's right for some people and it's not for others. Um, the the most number of employees I've had, I had like 17 or 18 employees at one point, and I knew that that was wrong for me because I was not very good at it. You know, when somebody's outside uh, having a smoke break and it makes me mad, I'm like, I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. So you, it's right for some people to start an online business and then they need to exit because it, they can only get it to a certain point before they've promoted themselves to their own level of incompetence. That's not a negative thing. It just means that they're not excited about bringing on HR and legal and, you know, doing 401ks and all sorts of things, you know, um, that need to be done in order to take the business to the next level. Whereas there may be somebody that has done that in the corporate world. That's their life. And they've worked for a publicly traded company and that publicly traded company keeps buying up other companies to improve their value. And that person spearheaded it they're perfect to buy your business because they can take it way beyond where you have. They'll also probably have some working capital, whereas the bootstrapper is still bootstrapping and never quite has enough money to keep it growing. But you said buy, did you say buy versus build or buy then build? I'm just curious because- Buy versus buy then, build. Yeah, buy then build's a, a book. <laughs> it is, it is. It's it's Walker Dybel's book. Walker's on, Walker's on our team. I talked to him earlier today. Oh, no way. It's Very a, cool. I, it's a really it's good book. It's been on my to-read list, yeah. Yeah, it's a really good one. Shoot me, I'll make. I'll get you a signed copy from Walker. Oh, He'll love that. Joe. Just blow his Joe, Joe's coming in clutch. He, this is the second book he sent me. I'm like, Joe, you're my new favorite human being. Oh, it will just blow Walker's ego up. It was so funny. We were at one when he first launched the book. It's so bizarre. If you've ever been around, you know, somebody that just published a book, it's a weird, weird thing. People want you to sign that book. They want us an autograph book. And he signed it for me. And he works on our team. And I was so excited. like, oh, look, Walker's. I'm, I'm somewhere in the book. I used to I'm like on page 267. I always get it wrong. He mentions me somewhere in the book. And so anytime somebody would ask Walker to sign the book in front of me, I would always tell them, ask him to sign it on X page because <laughs> that's where I was. But oh, that's great. Uh, it's a really tremendous book for those that are considering buying a business versus the risk of building. Now, Amanda Robb on our team, our AAB, she takes the opposite approach. She's with in Jonathan's camp where she's like, she did a whole podcast on the benefit of building versus buying, which is great because Walker was on. We talked about that. And then we're like, Mark had the opposite on. Amanda, she's been on the cover of Time Magazine. Um, she built a in, importing uh, uh, 
pearl business uh, back in the day. Incredible entrepreneur. She's all about buying, uh, building versus buying. She wouldn't, she wouldn't buy one. Yet she acts as an advisor here at Quiet Light, and she helps people buy businesses. She's very good at it. Uh, but there's there's different there's different personalities, and you have to understand who you are. And this is the challenge. And this is what happens with you know experience, not necessarily age, but experience. The the more experience you have in trying different things, the more you understand what you're good at and what fills your cup and what's going to help you take things to the next level. And sometimes that means, okay, I've gotten it where I want to get it. I'm going to sell it and I'm going to do it again in a non-competing category because I love, I love the launch. I love that climbing of the hill. It's, it's energizing. And whereas others get really energized by, I'm going to take this from a million in revenue to 3 million in revenue. And then I'm going to sell it for three times as much and laugh all the way to the bank. I definitely can relate to the the big launch energy. I guess we could call it. Make that the title of the show. Um, I prefer right that. after. I prefer that myself. <laughs> <laughs> right, right after. I'm starting to think. Okay, what other stuff can I do this with? Mm. You know, because I did enjoy the building part of it. Like I, I because I just I like making things you know, in general, right? Like it's part of like what I do in my career, right? Like that's, that's just kind of how my mind works. I wouldn't be satisfied if I could never create stuff, right? So when it comes to businesses, especially, I don't know if my future is me just rinse and repeating, you know, create, sell, create, sell, just kind of over and over until I die. Maybe it is, I don't know. Maybe it's not, but I definitely, I I was definitely thinking, okay, what other, what other DTC things can I do here? Like, you know, like my, the wheels are already turning and I'm like, just, this is barely just moving along the ground at this point. Right. It's, well, it's, it's, it's see, I'm the opposite feeling. where I love the idea of going into like, I had this weird fantasy of like literally buying a manufacturing plant and geeking out over applying like the Toyota production system, like lean manufacturing principles and just optimizing the hell out of it. So what I'm hearing no is I need to I need to hire Dylan. <laughs> yes. And he'll just make the 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 monolithic manufacturing facility for all of these wild DTC ideas I have. And we just yes. basically just become some giant like brand conglomerate. We're like the next P and G, right? We're just cranking Dude, my, out my ultimate like project, you know. Is literally building a fully autonomous warehouse. Like I kid you not. Like for like like Florida ceiling, I want to build out the entire thing. That, like pallet jacks, automated, <laughs> everything. That I, would, everything. I would rather mow lawns for a living than do that myself. And, and I've yeah. got a good friend that does that for a living, and there are days when I envy the hell out of him. Right, um, right. Yeah, no way. See, I've, I understand. With all, yeah. the, all, the, all the different things that I've done, I know that there's no way in hell I could be successful at that, Dylan, because it's sure, sure. No, no passion, none. No, I get Kill it, man. Me. I get it. I have this weird, like, for whatever reason, it's like this weird fantasy of, like, for whatever reason, like just the optimization of scale for, for me is like such a fun problem for me to solve. Like it just works in my wheelhouse. I don't know why, but it really does. But it, it, it illustrates the point, right? Like everybody's different. Like some people like the world go around. love that initial like zero to one kind of thing. Um, and I do like it. I mean, I've done it multiple times, but like if I had to pick, it would probably be like scaling something right i would probably enjoy taking it from one to three mil because like to me that's such a fun problem to solve um and it feels like a playground yeah we we've got uh we've got a business brad has a business listed it's like huge just like 25 million or something like that it's and the person that owns it 
he knew he could take the business from zero to 10 million in revenue. He knew he could do it and he did it and he did it incredibly well. But he also knew that that business could go from 10 million to 100 million, but he wasn't the right person for it. Uh, and he's old enough to understand that and is, is partnering in a sense with people that can do that. He's still going to, he's going to roll some equity and nice. own a small piece That's of smart. it for an eventual second exit. So he's not going to lose out on that, you know, $250 yeah, million dollar sale someday. He'll be a, you know, a strategic advisor, if you will, but, um, get out of the day to day grind that, um, would be required. And, and he doesn't have the relationships with multinational manufacturers and things of that nature with guys that love geeking out over fully automated warehouses, you know, like you, I got to say, it takes a lot of wisdom to, to understand that I'm the guy that takes it from zero to 10, but I need to find somebody else to take it from 10 to a hundred and to have the humility, um, and a lack of ego to be like, cool, I'm going to get out of the way of the business growing <laughs> because I'm not that guy. And, and to be like, I'm, but I'm going to go find that person, right? I'm going to go find the person who can do that, who has done that, put them in the right seat on the right bus and then step back and let them go ham. Yeah. Like that takes a lot, you know, just on the, on a personal side to, to get to that point. Cause I feel like a lot of business owners, you know, they, you got your ego tied to it, right? You're like, Oh no, I could do it. It's like, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> you know, I think it's smart to, to kind of take a step back, but, um, we'll wrap up here just for, you know, sake of time and all that good stuff. But Joe, um, where can people find out more about, about you personally, about quiet light, um, all that, all that jazz. Sure. Really just quietlightbrokerage.com. Um, I'm on the website, quiet light podcast. We have amazing guests like Dylan here. Um, people that have built, bought, sold their own online businesses, share their own personal experience. Um, you know, find us, reach out. I think the most important thing is understand the value of your business today. There's a valuation form. We are so low pressure. We're here to help first and foremost. We're not going to talk you into anything. We don't talk buyers into anything. We present good quality information and let them make their decision. There are people that I've worked with for uh, two or three years before they eventually exited their business. And some, in, in many ways, that's my favorite type of client because I know that there's a relationship and they're, they're business is going to be a maximum value for them, maximum value for the buyer, and everything's going to be buttoned up. And it's going to be a nice transaction. Occasionally, though, somebody just calls and they say, I got to get out. And uh, we can help with that too. Um, it's just, it's hard when they're emotionally beaten down uh, to get them uh, a, a good price for themselves. Because generally speaking, if they're emotionally beaten down, the, uh, the, the revenue's gone the wrong way too, and that affects the multiple. So my advice is, is if you're ever thinking about selling, whether it's two, three, four years from now, start understanding the process. We've got so many resources on the website they can find. We're here to help. Cool. Well, Joe, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. My pleasure, guys. Great to, great to be here.